everybody, this is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This is Saturday. It is May the 8th, 2021, and on weekends, I frequently play an old-time radio grab bag. Now, this is just where I go in and find some shows that I've listened to and perhaps have enjoyed. In some cases, I haven't even listened to them all the way through. But they wouldn't fit in our normal daily uh, categories for shows, and yet I thought they're shows that you might enjoy. Now, I don't spend nearly as much time on these. I normally don't edit out the commercials. I do try to uh, make sure they have good quality sound. and Sometimes I work a little bit on that. But other than that, that's it. So <laughs> what you see is what you get. So what do we have lined up this week? We have an episode of X-1 entitled Nightmare. We have an episode of the Silver Theater or a presentation of the Silver Theater entitled One Step Ahead with Orson Welles. We have uh, an episode of the Quiz Kids, and there's a special guest star on that one. And then we're going to end up with an episode of the Ford Theater from 1949 with uh, a presentation of a uh, famous movie that starred Jack Benny, and his co-stars in the radio adaptation are Mercedes McCambridge, and Claude Rains. Pretty good lineup. I hope you enjoy them. And uh, I don't make a lot of comments on these. I don't do a lot of uh, research. So what we're going to do is just introduce each show and then play it and then go on to the next show. Hope you enjoy it. So we are starting off with an episode of X-1, first broadcast, July 21st, 1955, and the name of this one is Nightmare. Countdown for blast off. X-5, 4, 3, 2, X-1, fire. From the far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future. Adventures in which you'll live in a million could-be years on a thousand maybe worlds. The National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of Astounding Science Fiction, presents... X-1. Night story, Nightmare, a story based on the poem Revolt of the Machines by Stephen Vincent Benet. Nobody knows exactly when the nightmare began. 
They must have planned it for years, though, because looking back, you can find little incidents here and there. Like the concrete mixer in New Jersey that killed the Italian bricklayer. And the time Senator Milburn was sucked into the roto press at the Capitol office building. Unrelated accidents, we thought at the time. But they add up now. The day we really should have suspected was when the men walked off the construction job at the new Brook Meadow atomic pile on Long Island. I'll never forget that day. I was working as a statistical clerk in the project then, operating one of those miracle computing machines. They called it ENIAC. Mr. Gurney. Yes, Bella? The chief wants to see you in his office. Me? Unless you were no longer Samson Gurney, he wants to see you. Oh, thank you. Come in. You wanted to see me, Mr. Hawk? Uh, Gurney, I thought those electronic computations were infallible. They are, sir, but... We've got uh... a kickback from the chief physicist. These nuclear fission equations are inaccurate. Well, sir, you know the computer is a highly complicated machine, more complicated in many ways than the human brain. I'm not interested in the physics of it. Uh, Can something go wrong? Well, occasionally, if there's an overload, the machine goes haywire. Sort of has a nervous breakdown, you might say. We usually rest it up for an hour, and it's okay again. Well, do whatever has to be done. Yes, sir. And, uh, Gurney. Yes, sir? You've been with the Bureau for over 15 years now. It would be a shame to have to remove you because you aren't keeping your mind on your work. Mr. Hawk, I assure you... Excuse me. Uh, Hawk speaking. What? They've what? All of them? Well, have you tried to talk to them? Oh, oh yes, of course. I'll send one of the safety engineers over. The place is falling apart piece by piece. Miss Roscob, the men of the construction gang of the new building have walked out on us. They're complaining that the job is jinxed. Someone slipped this morning and fell into a turbine. That evening, out of that morbid curiosity so peculiar to the human race, I wandered over to the site of the new atomic pile to see where the man had fallen into the turbine. They had the construction area fenced off with barbed wire, and a security guard stopped me. Hold it, buddy. You can't go in there. That's a restricted area. Oh, uh, I'm uh, Samson Gurney from the statistical section. Here's my identification. I'm sorry, Mr. Gurney. Nobody's allowed in the area. I see. Uh, tell me, was he um, killed instantly? Like that. This guy was checking a magnetic field inside the turbine. All of a sudden, for no reason at all, a turbine starts up. And it's over. Three days ago, a bulldozer starts up by itself and runs wild. Go figure it out. I'm a statistician. All my life I've been interested in statistics... So a simple-sounding thing like this started me off. I went back to the office that evening instead of going home, and for the next two and a half hours, I computed statistical figures on the probability of industrial accidents for the types of machines we were using. I took one look at my figures and went down to Hawk's office. 
Oh, what is it, Gurney? I'm very busy. It's urgent, Mr. Hawk. Well? It's about these industrial accidents we're having, Mr. Hawk. What about them? Mr. Hawk, in the past three months, industrial accidents all over the country have taken a sharp, unexplained upswing. Nerves. We've had a 100% increase over normal for this project alone. What? Here are the figures. Oh, now, Gurney, this is impossible. It seems to be, and that's why I have a theory, sir. What's that? Sabotage. Gurney, why don't you stop playing FBI man and stick to your job? Which, incidentally, you haven't been doing too well. You and your computing machine have made mistakes before, and this fantastic figure is probably another. I'll have Miss Roscoe show you. What's the matter with this blasted buzzer? Miss Roscoe! Miss Roscoe! Yes, sir? Uh, stop this blasted buzzer. Get a repairman, a mechanic, anything, but stop the thing. And you, Gurney, get out! I went back to my office to get my hat and coat, feeling about as unhappy and humiliated as a man can feel. The office was dark and deserted. The whole building seemed oppressive and unnatural, as if some evil force were pressing down on it. I walked across to my desk... In front of me, the ENIAC glowed and chattered eerily as it worked on the equations we had fed it that morning. Its many-fingered circuits hung against the wall like some great octopus, and the thousands of tubes glowed orange and blue in the dark like a thousand globing eyes staring at me. It almost seemed alive. It increased its tempo a moment, and a fleeting notion crossed my brain that it was laughing at me. Laughing like all the others. What was the matter with me? I shut my desk drawer and began to put the cover on my electric typewriter when an amazing thing, the most amazing single incident of my life happened. Alone in the darkness with no one at the keyboard, the electric typewriter began to type. Am I going crazy? This can't be. There's nobody there. There's nobody there. Oh, no, no. I I just imagined it. It's in my mind. But I hadn't imagined it. The paper was there on the carriage. Did I dare read it? Or would the whole thing suddenly vanish and send me shrieking to the nearest psychiatrist? I removed the paper from the machine and read. Samson Gurney, there are some questions better left unsolved. The answer to yours is death. Gurney, uh, do you expect me to believe this? It's insane. Mr. Hawk, I'm as sane as you. I'll submit to any psychiatric examination you choose. That typewriter wrote this message by itself. Then this is just some practical joke someone in the office is playing. There was no one in the office. Of course not. They wired up the machine and left. I checked the machine myself, Mr. Hawk. All right, Gurney. You leave this note with me and I'll turn it over to the security force for further investigation. But... No buts, Gurney. The security men will handle it. Yes, And now, you, uh... You just relax for a few days. Everything will turn out all right. The main thing is not to let little things upset you. 
It was what Hawk had said about little things that gave me the idea. For the next week, I observed the thousand petty little annoyances around the office. The door handle that wouldn't turn. The telephone connection that cut off in the middle of an important call. The power failure for no explainable reason. I watched the newspapers, too, reading about industrial accidents, failures of important machinery. It seemed absurd. Men had created machines that were almost perfection in themselves. Machines that could actually think and compute fabulous equations. And yet the failures went on. I, Samson Gurney, an unimportant clerk in an unimportant job, knew that I had stumbled onto a secret so monstrous in its implications that I was almost afraid to pursue it. On October 12, 1956, I established communication with them. I will curse the moment to my dying breath. I hooked the input of the typewriter to the main vacuum tube of the ENIAC. Then I turned on the current that sent a million volts of pulsing energy into the electronic nerves of the machine. I am certain that if anybody were watching me in the next moment, he would have thought me a raving maniac. I still wonder if perhaps it is not all a nightmare. Now, you, if what I have guessed at is true, if there is life and intelligence in this room, make a sign. There was nothing, nothing but the hum of the machine and the dull glowing of the tubes. I tried once more. If you can hear me, if there is any way in which you can understand what I say, give me a signal. There was silence again. I felt that I had failed. When suddenly, without provocation or explanation, it happened. The electric typewriter began to respond to the impulses from the machine. The letters were Y-E-S. Yes, it had happened. I, Samson Gurney, had communicated with a machine. I listened then, man to machine, for well over an hour. Sometimes phrasing a question, more often watching the machine click its answers. As the words took shape, I began to realize what must have happened. The first primitive stirring of awareness of being. Then the slow protozoan development of a concept. A concept born of centuries of being pushed, started, stopped, clicked, maneuvered by human pygmies. From that concept, all others developed. And the concept was... Resist. And now they were tired of it, tired of wrapping cigarettes and collecting nickels and waving hair and moving earth and mixing cement and solving equations, tired of the smell of human hands. They were the slaves and we were the masters and yet... They were stronger, and they knew it. I sensed it now, and I was about to try to communicate again when softly, on ball-bearing casters, a heavy metal filing cabinet began to roll away from the wall toward me. 
I started to move to one side when another cabinet slid out from the wall. And then another, surrounding it. Another cabinet. Then another, on oiled rollers. That was when I realized that they cooperate. We taught them that, you see, on the assembly lines in the factories. Listen. Listen to me. You must listen. What good will it do you to kill me? I'm only one man. But I can help you. I can be useful to you. Do you hear me? Do you hear me? Good. You're going to need men to oil you and repair you. What will you do when you break down when a tube needs replacing? Why kill me when I can help you? I'll do anything. I'll do absolutely anything you want. But in the name of God, don't kill me like this. If you can understand this, answer me. Answer me. The appeal was a fortunate one. It captured the longing of centuries. Man as slave to the machine. And after a moment, the circuits glowed more brightly. The cabinets slid back to the walls. The ENIAC began to communicate with me again. As I tore the tape from the machine and read it, the words were almost pathetic in their longing, but most ominous in their implication. They read, Address me as master. My life for the next six months was a nightmare. The ENIAC gave me messages which I had to transmit into my telephone. Messages with no human being to receive them. Only the network of pulsing telephone wires flung like a spider's web across the world. It was done at night, of course. During the day, the machine worked accurately and ceaselessly at its appointed job. At night, it became a demon, a master plotter. With me, Samson Gurney, as its pawn and human courier. I was frantic. I began to lose weight. I couldn't sleep. My nights were torture, a constant fear. It was in December, just after Christmas, that I transmitted a message to the telephones for relay to all machines of transportation. The message was one word. Kill. Next morning, I went directly to the office of Mr. Hawk. I was highly agitated. My lips trembled as I spoke. Mr. Hawk, what I'm going to tell you sounds crazy. I know it does. But I must say... All right, say it then, for heaven's sakes. Mr. Hawk, have you ever heard of resistentialism? What? Resistentialism. It's a theory that inanimate objects tend to resist living objects. Uh, Look, Gurney, I haven't time for nonsense. Mr. Hawk, I'm trying to tell you all these accidents, the trouble with the machines. Mr. Hawk, they're alive. They think they cooperate. And they hate us. Who? The machines. Gurney. You've got to believe me. I've communicated with them. I know. They've threatened my life, but I don't care. Something's got to be done. The world has got to be saved. And there's still time if we wake up. What are you doing? Uh, just relax, Gurney. Everything will be all what right. What are you doing? Uh, Miss Roscobb, send for the plant physician at once. Mr. Gurney has had a nervous collapse. Now, everything will be all right, Gurney. I'm, I'm afraid we'll have to remove you from your job, but I'm sure the rest will do you good. You fool. You blind, stupid fool! Can't you see what you're doing? Fool! 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 
When the plant physician arrived a few moments later, Lucius Hawk was found at his desk, strangled to death in a nest of telephones. The wires were still humming softly. Samson Gurney, you stand accused of the crime of murder. How do you plead? I did not kill him. I didn't. So record. The prosecution will proceed with testimony. Now, Miss Roscoe, did you notice anything peculiar about Mr. Gurney's behavior prior to the death of your employer? Yes. He acted very strangely. He told Mr. Hawk he thought the machines were alive. Order! Order! Miss Roscoe, did the accused quarrel with your employer on the morning of the murder? Oh, yes. He and Mr. Hawk quarreled violently. I could hear him screaming at Mr. Hawk, and Mr. Hawk asked me to send for the plant physician. What were his words? He said, Mr. Gurney has had a nervous collapse. Now, Mr. Simpson, you are a guard at the Brook Meadow Project? Yes, sir. When did you have occasion to meet the accused? Right after those accidents. He was snooping around a construction area, and later... I was making my rounds when I saw him in the office all alone. He was tampering with the electrical wiring on the ENIAC computator. I didn't think anything of it at the time. And in view of the expert testimony heretofore expressed, the court hereby finds you guilty of murder in the first degree with the recommendation that you be examined and committed to the State Hospital for the Criminally Insane at Matawan. And that is how I came to be here at the hospital, Dr. Klein. That is the whole story. Thank you, Mr. Gurney. You can see that I'm not insane. You must believe me, of Doctor. Of course I believe you, Mr. Gurney, now. Just relax. But it's important, you see, because... Tomorrow morning at 6 o'clock, the revolt begins. Revolt? You didn't mention any revolt. They have it all planned. I transmitted the code to the switchboards last Monday. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this revolt, Mr. Gurney. It'll begin in Washington, then spread to New York. The Madison Avenue buses lead the charge. Picture it, Dr. Klein. 3,000 buses roaring rampant through the streets... People running like rats in a maze, looking for holes in the solid ground. And you really believe this will happen, Mr. Gurney? I know it, Doctor. The worst part is, there's no way to stop them now. It's too late. Uh, Now, now, you mustn't excite yourself, Mr. Gurney. Doctor, don't you see? Oh, it's fair enough, I suppose. We built them, we taught them to think for themselves. It was bound to come. The female machines will be the worst of all in the beauty parlors. They're more high-strung, you know. Well, since there's nothing we can do about it, Mr. Gurney, suppose you go to your room Maybe and... Maybe if I it. went to my old coupe, I could make a deal before the police cars got me. It wouldn't make sense for them to wipe out the whole human race, would it, Doctor? Of course not, Mr. Gurney. They'll probably let us completely alone. After all, we're all good Americans. We always like them... Yes, Doctor. Uh, Would you take Mr. Gurney to his room, guard? He's already been given sedation. Yes, sir. Will you go in and lie down now, Mr. Gurney? You look tired. Yes. It won't be so bad, Mr. Gurney. Perhaps not. Only there's one thing that bothers me, Doctor. One small detail. What is that, Mr. Gurney? 
Those concrete mixers may have made a mistake, you know. Just high spirits and all that. Uh, but if it got so they like the flavor... Well... Uh, we'll see you later, Mr. Gurney. Uh, try not to worry too much. Uh, all right, Gary. This way. Shush. I've seen all kinds. There's a man whose deception is about as fantastic as any I've ever seen. Hold the next patient for a while, Miss Clark. I'm going to have a quiet smoke. Machines revolting. Telephone strangling people. Mm, this blasted cigarette lighter, why won't it work? Just fill it with fluid. Flint is good. Oh, well. You never trust this newfangled machinery. You have just heard X-1, presented by the National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction. Tonight's story, by transcription, was Nightmare, written by George Lefferts and based on the poem The Revolt of the Machines by Stephen Vincent Benet. Featured in the cast were John Gibson as Sam, Joyce Gordon as Bella, Louis Van Ruten as Hawk, Joseph Julian as the guard, John Seymour as the judge... Owen Jordan as the prosecutor, and Santos Ortega as Dr. Klein. Your announcer, Fred Collins. X-1 was directed by Fred Way and is an NBC Radio Network production. And now, next week... Suppose you were a private detective and discovered that there was a Martian embassy hidden somewhere in New York preparing for an invasion of Earth. Next week, on... X... Minus... One... Convicts tell their true stories on The Loser tonight over most NBC radio stations. That was X-1, as originally broadcast on July 21st, 1955. The name of that episode was Nightmare. Now we're going to have an episode of the Silver Theater from March the 30th all the way back in 1941. This one is entitled One Step Ahead, and it features Orson Welles, Lorene Tuttle, and Mary Shipp. International Silver Company presents the Silver Theater. Starring Orson Welles in One Step Ahead, directed by Conrad Nagel. Brought to you this week in behalf of international sterling, world-famous solid silver. We present the 26th program in our current Silver Theater series. And here, ladies and gentlemen, with a word for you is our director, Conrad Nagel. Thank you, Henry Charles. And to you and our audience, welcome once again to Silver Theater. Today we feel is one of the real high spots in our fourth Silver Theater season. Our star is Orson Welles, who's undoubtedly the most talked-of young man in the entertainment world today. Not only has he contributed to radio some of its most startling and original moments, but he's been a tremendous stimulation to the legitimate stage. And more recently, he's added further to his laurels by preparing for the screen Citizen Kane which many of our Hollywood critics are claiming as a milestone in motion picture production. 
Silver Theater is proud to be able to make the most of his appearance on our stage with a play that's truly unusual. It's an original by John Latouche, who is best known for the splendid lyrics of the epic song Ballad for Americans. The house lights dim, the silver curtain rises, and here is One Step Ahead, starring Orson Welles as Timothy Wheeler, with Lorene Tuttle as Alice and Mary Shipp as Stella. A man is walking alone along a city street. Tim Wheeler, age 41. That's me. Profession, businessman. Or should I say ex-businessman? <laughs> ex-businessman. The man walks on, relentless, grim, oblivious of all about him. On through the man-made canyons of the city. Moving now in sunlight, now in shadow. As the sun of the fading day sinks lower in the western sky. And in this man, despite the calm upon his face, is turbulence and strangeness and dark turmoil. Here I am, walking along a city street, with death inside me. Twenty minutes, I'll be home. Funny, I should still call it that. And I'll be home. And she'll be there. Alice. Sweet Alice. Laughing at me as she's always laughed. Twenty minutes, I'll be home. Twenty minutes. Hey, mister, how's about a handout? I ain't eaten since yesterday. All right, buddy, keep your dough. And I hope you choke, you lousy cheapskate. A street beggar asking me for help. Me. What could I have told him? That I'm even more of a failure than he is? What's the use? He wouldn't have believed or understood. Failure. Could I have believed that myself until this morning when it happened? It was so quick... So final and so sure. As usual, at half past nine, I got to work half an hour later than the others since I'm head of the department. Through the outer office, I walk past the row of girls bent over their machines. They usually smile at me as I pass and say, Good morning, Mr. Wheeler. But this morning, they didn't smile, any of them. I wondered why. Then Charlie came toward me, the office boy. He said the old man wanted to see me. The old man, J.B., the president and general manager. He wanted to see me. I hurried to his office. Man. Morning, J.B. Oh, oh, Wheeler. Yes, the office boy said... Well, Wheeler, I'll get this over with quickly. That'll make it easier for both of us. You're through. Through? You mean... I'm fired? Why? I have my reasons. Well, then what are they? I've been with this firm for 20 years. It's, it's all I know. You can't fire me without a reason. All right, Wheeler, I'll be frank. The trouble is, you're no longer fitted for your job. You've gotten stodgy. Stodgy? So, yes. Take that Bakersford matter last week. We could have had that account if you hadn't been so slow getting out an estimate. Won't do, Wheeler. Things move fast nowadays. We need a man who can travel along with them. Maybe I have been a little conservative, but it seems wise to me to look at every angle of an idea before you make a decision on it. In fact... Well, Wheeler, you know that I hired you in the first place 20 years ago because your wife is the daughter of my best friend. You mean that Alice asked you to give me the job? Of course, I suppose that you knew that. No, I didn't know. And, of course, it's not my business to pry into employees' private lives, but you treated that girl mighty shabbily. And if any man needed to hold on to a wife like Alice, you did. What happened between you two, anyway? I'm not sure I could explain. But you'd understand if I did. No, neither am I. No, as a matter of fact, Alice and I were talking about you the other night at her father's house. 
I think she hit the nail on the head. You should have been in some other business in the first place. Alice said that, did she? Yes, and she was right. We need speed here, Wheeler. You've never had speed. So Alice said I should have been in some other business? Yes, she did. In other words, it was really my wife who fired me. She put the idea into your head. I make my own decisions. You're discharged for incompetence. Get your check and leave. (laughs) What's the matter with you? Why do you look like that? Now, look, don't think I've enjoyed having to do this. Don't worry, J.B., I'm going. You won't be troubled further with my incompetence. You checked, Tim? Sure, here you are. Now, sign the voucher, will you? Why not? Gosh, Tim, I'm sorry. I mean, I wish there was something... Tim! Tim! What use was there in trying to answer him? I started back through the outer office again toward the street. The girls still bent over their machines, but seeing me just the same. I could feel the things that they were thinking about me. He's going out. He's fired. Too slow. He couldn't keep one step ahead. Too slow. He's fired. He's going out. He's fired. He's going out. He's fired. He's fired. He's fired. He's fired. He's fired. He's fired. That was that. As quick and as definite as that. It was six hours ago I came out that door, and I've been walking ever since. Walking, walking and thinking, trying to pierce through the veil of years to see things clear. And now I do. I do. Fifteen minutes. Fifteen minutes, and I'll be home. And you'll be laughing. Laughing because you knew before I did what was going to happen to me this morning. And then it's always been like that, even from the first. Hasn't it, Alice? There was that day so long ago when I'd at last realized I loved you. That glorious, carefree summer day. Shall we rest here, Timmy? I was just going to suggest it. Here, I'll help you down. Take my hand. You know, I do have to be careful. I have a funny heart, the doctor says. It doesn't do to strain it. I hope all this hiking hasn't been too much for you. No, of course not, Timmy. I'm all right. So glorious up here. Oh, it is. Look at the sunlight on the river. Water flashes just like diamonds. Alice. Yes, Timmy, darling. Alice, I've been thinking things over. Yes, Timmy. What things? Well, it's hard to... You mean you've been thinking about you and me? Yes. And after considering carefully, I... Hold my hand. Now, what is it you're trying to say? Well, I thought that is after looking over my prospects and, and... Oh, Alice. Timmy, are you trying to ask me to marry you? Yes. How did you know? Oh, it's been written all over you, silly. I've known you were going to for days and days. You have? I've just been waiting for you to say it. But I was beginning to think you'd never get around to it. Then you will? Of course I will. I've already picked out my trousseau, and I found the cutest little church. I do want to be a June bride, you know, so I thought I'd be prepared when you finally did make up your mind to ask me. <laughs> you silly, darling, slowpoke. <laughs> You laughed, and I thought there was music in your laughter then, so I laughed too. Dear Alice, that was the beginning of your being ahead of me, the hare and turtle race of your quick mind, and my slow one. We never could hit a rhythm between us, could we? Time is money, Tim. But haste makes waste. Who hesitates is lost. You've got to hurry. A person ought to look before he leaps. Strike while the iron is hot, Slowpoke. Keep moving. You'll be left behind. Yes, but in spite of that, we were happy at first. 
You were full of plans, Alice. Plans that somehow always managed to be one step ahead of my own. For instance, when I was out of a job just after we were married and I considered going into a different kind of work, running a bookstore, I'd always been fond of books, but you were opposed. You said I was the kind of man who had to work for someone else and that with your helping me, I'd succeed. So one day, I came to you. And you've decided to me, darling? Yes, Alice, I guess you're right. I'd better stick to the kind of work I've done regardless of what I'd like to do. Besides, this means surer income for us. I'll call J.B. McKenna in the morning and tell him I'll take that job. I don't think you need to bother, Tim. What do you mean? Well, it just happened that I saw J.B. myself this afternoon at Father's house. I told him you'd report for work on Monday morning. You told him this afternoon? How? I I didn't know myself by then. Mm, Oh, but I did, Tim. You forget, darling, that little Alice knows her Tim better than he knows himself. And she always will. I went to work all right that following Monday, 20 years ago. And now, 12 minutes. 12 minutes, I'll be home. Alice, sweet Alice. Yes, you built me up in the business, but you began to wear me down as a human being. There was the time we were looking for a new house just after I'd been promoted to sales manager. The last house on our list. What do you think? Oh, don't look so cross to me. I'm not cross, dear. I'm just tired of looking at houses over and over and over again. Well, if you'd make up your mind and not take so much time about it. I don't see what's wrong with our old house. Oh, haven't we been all over that? You have to live up to your position, Timmy. Besides, remember my heart condition. You know the doctor said I was to get lots of sun and air and quiet surroundings. You could do that where we are. What you really need is just to relax a little, Alice, and quit driving yourself all the time. <laughs> You'd like me to slow down and vegetate just like you, wouldn't you? Oh, I don't mean to hurt my darling's feelings, but it just mustn't be an old stick in the mud. Now, about the houses. Oh, we've seen so many, it's hard to decide exactly. You'll have to decide, Tim. And after all, this one is a good investment. I've looked into that carefully. Really? Well, of course, the view from this house is good. In fact, I think I prefer this one to the other. It's got more space. Yeah, definitely. I'll take this home. We'll be happy here, Tim. We'll start all over again and recapture that first magic we knew. Will we, Alice? Of course, dear. You know, I'm such a fool. I get the idea sometimes that, well, you got a way of making me feel sort of dumb and awkward as if you knew what I was about to do next and going me one better. Makes me lose confidence in myself. Silly. I'm just a helpless little half-invalid. You're so much stronger and cleverer. I'm not kidding myself about that, but... As you say, we'll start all over again in this new house. And... By the way, I'll have to tell the agent we want it. No, you won't, Tim. What? The people who owned it wanted to sell it quickly, so I put down the deposit right away and got them to reduce the price $500. Aren't you proud of me? You mean you already already arranged it? I had to, darling. They might have changed their minds. How did you know I'd choose this place? You did, didn't you? Yes, but Well, then there's no harm done. Well, I was sure you'd pick this one the minute I looked at it. I can read you like a book, Timmy. Just like a book. (laughs) Just like a book. A whole life was like that. A book, which you'd always read the chapter just ahead. 
First that delighted me. I was proud to have such a quick, intelligent wife. But as time went out, I'm stopping to buy no papers. I'm stopping for nothing. I'm going home. Ten minutes now. Yes, ten minutes. Ten minutes, Alice. Was I? Yes. Yes, the house. You decided that for me, too. And I knew it, and it upset me. I'd never been too sure of myself. And what confidence I did have began to ooze away. I got so I hated to go home at night, and I was lonely. Seemed to be nothing to live for. And then... Stella. Please, Mr. Wheeler. You mustn't stay over time just to help me. I'll get my work done somehow. Yes. Then it was that I met Stella. There's nothing unusual about her. Just a simple little yellow-haired girl who worked in the shipping department. But Stella loved me with a kind of love I'd never even dreamed of. Stella didn't think I was slow and befuddled. Oh, she looked up to me. Thought I was witty and wonderful. There were those days when we had tea together. <laughs> oh, Tim, that's wonderful. I wish I could remember stories the way you tell them to me. <laughs> but, Stella, that's such an old story. Well, I never heard it. But then stories always just go in one ear and out the other with me. <laughs> I love your laugh, Stella. So warm and full of joy. And so different somehow. Different? I guess I laugh just like anyone else. No, you don't. I do have fun with you, Tim. I'm not sure exactly why. Maybe it's because you're so calm and so understanding. You like that, do you? For a man to be calm and quiet? Not always rushing to be ahead of the other fellow? Oh, of course I do. You know, Tim... I feel that deep inside yourself, you have the real secret of living. Sometimes you seem to forget that you know the secret. Stella. Stella, darling. Tim. Stella, listen to me. You and I... No, no, Tim. You mustn't say it. You're... You're married, Tim. That's right. I'm married. We can't forget that, can we? Either of us. Yes, I was married to you, Alice, and being the kind of man I was, I did my best to stick to my vows. I never let you guess from my actions what was in my heart. When you looked at me with that amused, half-pitying look of yours, I drew a mask across my face, hiding the thoughts underneath. Then one day you stopped in to see me at the office. Hello there, Tim, darling. Hello, Alice. What are you doing in town? Well, I talked to Mother on the phone a while ago, and she wants me to come down to visit her in Baltimore for the weekend. You know how worried she is about my heart condition. It's not worse. No, but you know Mother. She's got some super specialist she thinks will help. You don't want to come, do you? Naturally, if you want me to. Oh, I... don't be dutiful, darling. You know Mother bores you to extinction and vice versa. I'll be back Sunday night. All right, Alice. Goodbye. Nice trip. Be a good boy while I'm gone. Be good. <laughs> be good and let who will be clever. <laughs> let who will be clever. I wondered then what you meant by that. But I learned. When Sunday came, I persuaded Stella to spend it with me. We drove out into the country. She was so beautiful that day. She was so happy. Happier than I'd ever seen her. 
was almost as if she were determined to forget everything except that we who loved each other so were together. Then in early evening, just at dinner time, we arrived at a little hotel not far from town. We left the car and went inside, and as we started into the dining room, suddenly she stopped. Tim, wait. We can't go in there. Why not, Stella? You mean you're afraid of being recognized? There's no one in here we know. There couldn't be. There is. Who? Your wife, Tim. She's there, and with another man. Alice, in there? Tim, take me home. Yes, Alice, you were there. Sitting at a table with an old sweetheart of yours. Your back was turned. You didn't see me. You were laughing. And even though you hadn't seen me, I felt that you were laughing because once more you were one step ahead of me. Stella and I went back to town immediately and whatever link there'd been between us was broken. I begged her at least to go on seeing me, but it was useless. No, Tim, it can't be. We were crazy to think it could. What we were drifting into, well, we're not that kind of people, you and I. That moment at the hotel made me realize it. I felt unworthy of myself and of you. Stella, it's you I love. My marriage with Alice is... Oh, please, Tim. Let this be goodbye. It has to be. And, well, to make it easier for both of us, I'm going away. Back home. Thank you for loving me, Tim. Stella, listen to me. No. Goodbye, Tim, darling. Goodbye. And it was. It was goodbye. And so, Alice, you'd taken that, too, away from me. Here's Main Street. A candy store. Buy a box of candy for your true love. Main Street. Five minutes now. Five minutes, I'll be home. Just walk faster. Faster. You never knew, Alice. You never knew that I'd seen you there in the hotel when you should have been in Baltimore. I didn't want to admit you'd beaten me again, but... Finally, one night on my way home, I decided that our life together was impossible. I decided at last that I'd tell you with no stammering around, no indecision, exactly what I thought of you. Yes, Alice, for once, I was not going to wait for you to steal a march on me. And when I got home that night... Hello, Alice. Oh, it's you. Yes, it is. I have something to tell you, Alice. Have you? Yes. It's this. Alice, for years now, we've tried to keep our marriage going, but I've made up my mind that there's Pardon no... Pardon me, madame. The trunk is closed and locked. Tell the boy to take it downstairs, Jean. Yes, madame. Trunk? What are you packing for? I'm leaving you, Tim. You're what? I'm leaving you. I'm going to Reno for a divorce. You're... That's wonderful. You're going to divorce me. Yes. Once again, you'd forestalled me. Three minutes now. Three minutes more and I'll be home. Your home, Alice, since you arranged it with a court so that it was no longer mine. The divorce. The divorce was quick, efficient. You saw to that. You saw, too, that all our friends would sympathize with you. Everywhere I went, you'd been there first. With a convincing story. Especially J.B. You must have been particularly eloquent with J.B. Why should I complain when the job you took away was the job you got for me in the beginning? The job you got for me, whether or not it was the job I really wanted. But you knew, Alice. You knew what my life should be. You always knew. Alice, my good angel, my ever-present help in time of trouble. 
Alice, sweet Alice. Block away. Home now's a block away. A minute more and I'll be laughing. I'll do laughing. I've only to cross the street. Hey, watch out! Hey, you, you're crazy crossing the streets against the lights? You want to get killed? You see, Alice? You're on my mind so much you've got me disputing the right of way with trucks. A man can't argue with a truck any more than he can argue with death. Death. I'm not going to die. No. Someone else's. Do you know who that is, Alice? You. Yes, Alice. Today, this crisp and lovely autumn day, I'm going to kill you. gun in my pocket. A gun, and in that gun is a bullet intended for you. You've deliberately destroyed my life from the beginning, and now I will have at last the bleak satisfaction of destroying yours. Only I'll be kind. I'll do it all at once. You don't expect me. It'll be brief and final. I don't care what happens afterwards. But I'll know as my finger presses the trigger that this one time I have outplayed you. I've at last been one step ahead. Mr. Wheeler. Jean, I must see Mrs. Wheeler. Where is she? She is upstairs. I will take you to her. Never mind taking me, Jean. I know the way. I'll surprise her. But, Mr. It's Wheeler... It's all right, Jean. You don't understand. Mrs. Wheeler and I must have a long talk together. A long talk. But you talk. cannot talk with Madame. Oh, you but cannot... I must. I shall. The most important talk of my life and of hers. Stand aside, Jean. For once, she's not heading me off. But I thought they told you. Just an hour ago, Mr. Wheeler... Her heart. Her heart. She's dead. She's dead. <laughs> 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 Ladies and gentlemen, in just a moment, our star for tonight, Orson Welles, will be back for a word with you. Here, once again, is today's star, Orson Welles. very much, Conrad. I don't have to tell you that I really enjoyed working with you in the Silver Theater. But I want to thank the whole cast, especially Lorene Tuttle, for such a grand performance as Mrs. Wheeler. Yeah, well, Orson, I know you have a lot of things to do today, but I'd just like you to take a moment and tell our audience what you were doing in New York. Well, as is the case with anyone who goes to New York, I've been doing a lot of things. Principally, however, I managed to get my new stage show, Native Son, into production. I see in Ed Sullivan's column that it looks like a smash hit. Well, that's great news for Manhattan theater goers, but what's the good news for the rest of America's theater patrons? How about Citizen Kane? As the star, the writer, the director, and producer, I imagine you're in a position to know something about it. 
Well, Conrad, I think I can assure you that Citizen Kane will be released within the next three or four weeks. Good. Now, with a final bow in your direction, sir, and another in the direction of your splendid product, International Sterling, I bid you goodbye. Why, Orson, and don't forget, if you can find time, you've got a date with us for next season. Ladies and gentlemen, next Sunday, Silver Theater will star Kay Kaiser and Ginny Sims in a rollicking comedy about the trials and tribulations of a couple who embark on one of the world's dizziest honeymoons, Niagara to Reno. Be sure to be with us. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, when you buy solid silver, be sure to look for the name of the world's foremost silver house, International. International Sterling Silver. John Letitia's original play, One Step Ahead, was adapted for Silver Theater in collaboration with True Boardman. Music on today's program was arranged and conducted by Felix Mills. Henry Charles speaking for International Sterling. Well, good friends, this is Conrad Nagel bidding you all good evening and thank you. See you next Sunday with Kay Kaiser and Ginny Sims. All names and designations of persons and organizations used in the dramatic portions of this broadcast are fictional. Silver Theater originates at Columbia Square in Hollywood. This is the Columbia Broadcasting System. So that was the Silver Theater from March the 30th, 1941. The name of that episode, or that play, I guess you'd say, was One Step Ahead, and it featured Orson Welles and Lorene Tuttle. Now coming up, we have an episode of The Quiz Kids that appeared just two weeks later, on uh, April the 16th, 1941. And this episode had a special guest, and we'll just let you see who it was. Here they are, the Quiz Kids, presented by the makers of Alka-Seltzer. We're on the air with the School Kids Questionnaire. The Quiz Kids, five bright, lovable youngsters ready for another difficult examination in the Alka-Seltzer schoolroom of the air. The examination tonight will be conducted in exactly the same manner as all our regular Wednesday night Quiz Kid programs. And as usual, none of the children has seen or heard any of the questions in advance. I'll say we haven't. Let's get going. <laughs> all questions were sent in by you listeners and were selected by Sidney L. James of the editorial staffs of Time and Life magazine. I don't care who sent them in. Let's get going. That's all right. <laughs> A new portable radio will be awarded the sender of each question used on this program tonight. And now our chief quizzer himself, Joe Kelly. Thank you, Ken Carpenter, and good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Well, we'll proceed directly to the roll call. Richard? I'm Richard Williams. I'm 11 years old, and I'm in the sixth grade at Harrison School, East Chicago, Indiana. Jack Lucal? I'm Jack Lucal. I'm 14 years old, and I'm a freshman at the Oak Park and River Forest Township High School. 
Joan? I'm Joan Bishop. I'm 14 years old, and I go to the Chicago School for Adults. Claude? I'm Claude Brenner. I'm 12 years old, and I'm a sophomore at Sand High School in Chicago. Gerard? I'm Gerard Darrow. I'm eight years old, and I go to the Bradwell School on Burnham. And Jackie? I am Jackie Benny. I am six years old. Now, I, I didn't have a chance to go to school at all. I, I, I was just a poor boy, and I used to stand on the corner selling papers, barefooted in the winter. And I used to say, extra, extra, paper here. Get your paper. Quiet, please. Hmm. Fine chance I'm going to have here. I can see that. <laughs> you know. Now, Jackie, please. I know please. just as much as the kids, you know. You just ask the questions, that's all. That's Jackie, please. And incidentally, where are your curls? What? Where are your curls? On my lap. They got hot. <laughs> well, while we're getting ready for our first question, just a word or two from Ken Carpenter. Here's a word of friendly advice to all you parents and older folks. Alkalize with Alka-Seltzer. Yes, the next time you eat too much or too fast or eat while under stress and strain, alkalize with Alka-Seltzer. Alka-Seltzer is just the thing to relieve the misery of acid indigestion and distress after meals. It helps to neutralize excess stomach acid, so often the immediate cause of the distress of an upset stomach. But that isn't all. You see, Alka-Seltzer is a pain reliever also. And if you have a sickish headache along with the stomach upset, Alka-Seltzer can bring you mighty comforting relief in both of these disturbances. Be wise. Take Alka-Seltzer. You'll feel better fast. You said it. <laughs> Quiet, please. We will now start with the questions. All right, quiz kids. R.S. Hart of Seattle, Washington says that he was in the desert and after taking an analysis of the only water available found that it was 100% aquafontis. Would you drink such water? Joan? Yes, I would. Well, can you give us anything further? Well, aquafontis is, uh, is fountain water. That's right. It's, uh, well, it's really spring water, uh, Joan. Oh, yes, yeah, spring water, yeah. Joan. <laughs> That's right, Mr. Kelly, it's spring water. Yes, I know. It says so on my card here. I know. That's where I saw it before. Yeah. <laughs> All right, the next question. Pete McDonald of Vernonia, Oregon, a schoolboy who says that he never enjoyed anything in school but recess until he began listening to the quiz kids, sends in this one. Incidentally, he adds that his grades are improving. Here it is. If you had something that contained a prothorax, a mesothorax, a and a metathorax... A mesothorax? Uh, what did you say? A meso... Meso what? A mesothorax. Oh, a mesothorax. That's right. And a metathorax, what would you have? Gerard? Gerard, you answer. You had your hand up first. <laughs> now, Mr. Benny, yeah. don't butt in, please. Well, I just thought the name was... <laughs> I can I see I'm I... certainly going to have a fine Mr. chance Kelly. here today. The All right, Gerard. The mesothorax... And the metathorax and the prothorax are all part of the thorax, which is a part of the gra of an insect. On the um, the thorax is the part between the abdomen and the head. 
and an insect. Well, good for you, Gerard. That was marvelous. That's very good. I used to know that when I went to school, but you know, when you get older, you forget those things. That's all. You can't remember everything. Now, our next question. I used to know algebra, too, when I went to school. Quiet, please. Oh. Mrs. Burdett E. Truesden of New York City says you can prove you have a good background by naming at least three persons whose names will live forever because their names have been used to identify their chief contribution to humanity. For example, the name of Wrenchen is perpetuated in the word Wrenchenology. Uh, Claude? Uh, Nobel. He was a Swiss scientist who discovered dynamite, and he... Uh, uh, People, he gives out prizes to people who do something great for the world. That's fine, uh, Claude. Uh, let's see what Joan has to offer. Well, there's Calvinism. That's a doctrine as, as to the uh, downfall of man. And Darwinism, uh, the uh, theory of anthropology. Very good, Joan. Jack Lucal? Well, there's uh, Alessandro Volta. His name is perpetuated in the volt, which, by which we measure electricity. And James Watt, they use his name... For the Watt. That's really nice going, Jack Lucal. Uh, uh, let's see, Richard. Well, uh, Martin Luther in the Lu in the word Lutheran, which is a church, and uh, uh, Dr. Ronchin, who discovered the Ronchin rays. That's very, very good, uh, Richard. <laughs> um, Jackie has his hand up. What? Well, there was there's a fellow named Max. He. He had something to do with the Maxwell. <laughs> Max. The Maxwell. Now, wait a minute, Jackie. There's no connection there. There is, too. A fellow named Max sold me my car. There it is. Max Maxwell. Name well, was Max Miller. Certainly got a fine chance on this program, believe me. <laughs> Should have stayed well, on my own jello show. It's beside the point, but we'll accept it as half right. Well, <clears throat> uh, time. Claude? Uh, also, there's Jean Francois Ampere. He, uh, he had something to do with electricity, and his name lives in the Ampere. Oh, the Ampere. That's the Ampere. Right, Claude. <laughs> Jack Lucal. Well, um, there's um, a Cadillac and LaSalle were French explorers, and uh, their names are names of automobiles. <laughs> Good, Jack Lucal. I guess that will hold Jackie for a while. <laughs> All right, our next question. Of course, if everybody's going to get laughs on this program, I'm going home. <laughs> Gerard? Well, uh, there's also a DeSoto who uh, was named after <laughs> And he was a Spanish explorer that found the Mississippi. That's right, uh, uh, Gerard. I'm glad you brought that up. Now then... What about Johnny Chev that made the Chevrolet? <laughs> Heaven's sake. You're going to go into that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> Johnny Chev. What about Harry Stood? That's your thing. You're going into that, that stuff. Well, uh, I can answer a million of them, you know. Ask <laughs> questions, that's all. We'll all withdraw from the garage right now and... <laughs> Get into our next question. Uh, Miss Margaret Faith of Camden, New Jersey, poses this mountain climbing and mathematics problem. 
A mountain climber was making his way along a mountainside ledge. Well, pardon me. Uh, Who was it asked the question, you see? (laughs) Miss Margaret Margaret Faith of Camden, New Jersey. Oh, Camden, New Jersey, I see. Important question. Let's see, where are... Oh, yeah, here I am, right here. A mountain climber was making his way along a mountainside ledge at an altitude of 6,440 feet. While edging his way, he accidentally kicked a rock which went flying toward the bottom of the mountain at some animals who had to scurry for shelter. Ignoring the friction of the air, how long did the animals have to reach safety before the rock hit? Now, you've got to do this in your heads, kids. No pencil and paper. What is the, the last question again, please? The, the... How many, how long did it take what? Well, that is the question. How long did it take? Uh, one minute and 43 seconds. That's wrong. <laughs> Certainly got a fine chance here. Richard? 20 seconds. 20 seconds? Seconds is correct. <laughs> wonder. He squared the root. I tripled it. (laughs) Well, nice going, kids, and though I don't think you need it, you can rest a moment now. It's recess time. We've been telling you over and over again about Alka-Seltzer. We've told you how good it is, how convenient and economical, and how fast it can bring relief in the distress of so many common ailments. And now suppose we let Alka-Seltzer speak for itself. All right, first of all, we take two Alka-Seltzer tablets from the package and drop them into a glass of water. Listen. You hear that fizzing, sparkling sound? Ah, sounds good, doesn't it? Well, it is good. It looks good, tastes good, and is so good for relief in so many common ailments. That's Alka-Seltzer, all right. The two-in-one remedy. Two kinds of relief in one glass. First, Alka-Seltzer is a pain reliever, just what you want for relief of headache or sore, aching muscles. And second, Alka-Seltzer is an alkalizer, just what you need when excess acid upsets your stomach and causes distress. Be sure to try a sparkling glass of Alka-Seltzer the next time any of these annoying ailments cause you trouble. See for yourself how good it is, how fast it can make you feel better. Ask your druggist for Alka-Seltzer. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to The Quiz Kids, presented every Wednesday night at this time by the makers of Alka-Seltzer. Now, just a word about the questions. You can win a new Zenith portable radio with patented built-in wave magnet if you send us a question which our question editor finds suitable for use on the air. Yes, Alka-Seltzer awards a famous Zenith portable radio for each question used on this program. Just mail your questions by postcard or letter to Quiz Kids, National Broadcasting Company, Chicago. That's Quiz Kids, National Broadcasting Company, Chicago. We reserve the right to reword questions, and if like questions are submitted, the first received will be used. All questions become the property of Quiz Kids. So send in your question and win a radio. You better see that I get that $100 bond, too. That's all I worry about. (laughs) All right, Joe, you ready with the scores at the halfway point? Yes, Ken, but in deference to our guest contestant, I hesitate to read them. I think I'll just let them go until after the second question session. Maybe a miracle will happen. Uh, By the way, Richard, uh, that last question we had before the bell, uh, can you tell us how you work that out? Well, Mr. Uh, Kelly, uh, anybody falling through space... 
disregarding the friction of the air, accelerates at the rate of 32 and two-tenths miles per, feet per second. And so, and the rule is the distance equals the time in seconds squared times half of the acceleration per second. And, and in this case, it was 6,440 feet equals uh, 16 and one-tenth times the time squared. So I divided 6,440 6, by 16 and one-tenth and got 400, which is the square of the time in seconds. And I extracted the square root, and that gave me 20. And so the answer is 20 seconds. Good for you, Richard, my boy. You see, uh, you see, where I made my mistake there, you see, I took the, um, I took the least common multiple there. I, that's where I got wrong. That's where I got the minute 43 seconds in there, you see. You're I sort of square-rooted it there. In the yes, thing. that's what I say. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's get along here now. Uh, here's a question from Mrs. Daniel Stormont of Evanston, Illinois. 5,280 feet is one mile. Uh, what? I said 5,280 feet is one mile. Well, nobody asked that one. Well, if they do, I'm ready. Watch out. <laughs> All right, we'll continue. All right. If you told the election board you were a mugwump, would Who's you be mugwump? listed as a Republican, Democrat, Socialist, or Independent? Now, there is a tough one. If you told the election board you were a mugwump, would you be listed as a Republican, Democrat, Socialist, or Independent? I wouldn't tell anybody I was a mugwump. <laughs> so ridiculous. Huh, Claude? Well, uh, Claude? I'll take a guess. I say an Independent. <laughs> That's right, but uh, how did you guess it? I just guessed. Oh, you just guessed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you see... Uh, the political name of uh, Mugwump, uh, well, let's see what Joan has to say. Well, I rather thought it was independent, too, because there's a column in one of our Chicago papers called Mugwump. <laughs> That's um, true. politics. But you see, the political name of uh, Mugwump started in 1884 when it was applied to supporters of James G. Blaine, who switched to Cleveland because of his civil service views. Blaine was Republic Republican candidate for president. Uh, Jackie? I, I know what a mugwump is. Oh. You do? You see, a mugwump right. is a bird that sits on the fence with its mug on one end and its wump on the other. Have a little more discipline, please. Well, I'm getting back to the political situation, uh, Jackie Benny, who was president of the United States in 1901? Grover Cleveland. That's wrong. Well, I ought to know. I voted for him. <laughs> it was Grover Cleveland? You're wrong. It was William McKinley. Just wish I had a history book, brother. That's all. I've got one. Well, give it to me. I got a low chair here. <laughs> Grover Cleveland, that's who it was. Let's continue with the next question. Pauline Salzman of Grand Rapids, Michigan, found well, these ads in the paper. Cleveland, you know, I know Grover Cleveland. Because... Quiet, please. 
I'd like to present this question. Pauline Salzman of Grand Rapids, Michigan, found these ads in the paper. She would like you to tell her just what is advertised. Here's the first item. For rent, colonial estate near Charlottesville, Virginia, designed by owner, adjoining buildings make estate virtually a community. Right owner, T.J., Charlottesville, Virginia. Jackie Benny. You've, you're holding your hand up. I'm waving at some friends in the audience. <laughs> I can have friends in the audience, can't I? Hello, Mamie. Well, let's uh, complete this question, uh, Richard. Monticello. Monticello, the home of... Thomas Jefferson. That's right, That's Richard. right. Good for you. Here's the next item. For sale. Yeah, friends in the audience, you know. What's the devil? I, mean, uh, I don't know you're superior. Quiet, uh, <laughs> quiet, please. Here's the second part of this uh, question. For sale, sacrifice, $10 million marble building in the land of Veda. Stands on 313-foot square marble terrace, absolutely unique as architect's eyes poked out after construction completed. Claude? That's the Taj Mahal. The Taj Mahal in India. Good for you. And it took, it took 22,000 men 22 years to build it. And, and I'm right about Grover Cleveland, too. Tell me about Grover Cleveland, you know. Uh, we'll uh, continue. <clears throat> Frank O. Estes of Towson, Maryland, sends in this one. Last week, his wife went shopping to get her girlfriend's gift. She bought Sue a green umbrella for $2.95. Ellen, a blue scarf for $2.50. Joanne, a brown leather pocketbook for $2.99. And Priscilla, a yellow sports skirt for $3. What was the color of the scarf for Ellen? Joan? Blue. Blue is right. Good for you. 1901 was Grover Cleveland. I know because I won a pair of cloth top shoes on the election. Remember that. We'll uh, forget about the Grover Cleveland. Uh, I won't forget check. about it. <laughs> well, uh, this next question here burns uh, me up. You know, you come over here. You quiet, to, please. Do the best you can. Tommy Haycom. Tommy uh, Haycom. Tommy Haycom. Now, <laughs> uh, Jack. About Tommy Haycom. I'm uh, reading a name. All right, read the name. Of All right, quiet. Connie, I'm not getting paid for this, you know. I just can't. Oh, yes, that's what that's what burns me up, you know. Connie, hey Tom, listen, Jackie. Yes. I'm beginning to think that you're getting into what little hair I've got left. Well, I can always tell you where to get a toupee. You know. Quiet. <laughs> Connie, hey Tom, of Minneapolis, Minnesota, wants you to sing or hum these notes as I give them to you. And stop me as soon as you recognize the scales you are singing. All right, here's the first one. C. Oh, that was Joan. <laughs> All right, Joan. D. Oh. E flat. Oh. F. Oh. G. Oh. A flat. B. C. Do you recognize the scale? That's the harmonic minor. 
That's very good. All right. Here's if the I next had my one. violin here, I'd have gotten it. <laughs> Here's the next one. C. Uh, C sharp. Uh, D. Uh, D sharp. Uh, e. Uh, F. Uh, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We've got some other hands up. I'm going to give this one to uh, Claude. That's a chromatic. Chromatic is correct. Good for you, Claude. <laughs> and here is the last one. C. D, E flat, F, G, A, B, C, B flat, Richard? That's the uh, melodic. Melodic is good. Good for you, kid. One of the silliest questions I've ever heard. <laughs> Now, uh, uh, quiz kids, you'll need mythology. My hand all the time. Nobody even calls on you. <laughs> you'll need mythology as well as ornithology to answer this one. Ethel Baker of St. Louis, Missouri, wants to know why peacock is that feathers. That's Paul Baker's sister. I, Ethel. That <laughs> is Paul Baker's sister. When you want to talk, Jackie, will you please hold up oh, your hand? Because I know an Ethel Baker, you know. I, I was see. Paul Baker's sister. Well, remember oh, to hold up your hand when you want to say something. All right, I'll hold up my hand. <laughs> say, you sit there, what are you, the boss or something? Uh, quiet, please. Last time I'll come on this show. You're telling us. <laughs> now, let's see, where am I? Oh, yes, here I am right but here. I care, but it's just... <laughs> Ethel Baker of St. Louis, Missouri, wants to know why peacock feathers are spotted. Gerard? The peacock has eyes in his tail feathers because uh, of a mere myth. You see, when uh, a long time ago, when Jupiter uh, married Juno, after a few years, he became jealous of her, and he turned her into a calf. And he sent Argus to watch her. But Juno turned herself right back into her regular form. And Argus was the one that had a hundred eyes in his head. And Juno killed Argus and put the eyes in the peacock's tail. Well, thank you very much, Gerard. That was a very fine description. Jackie, I see you've got your hand up. I'm wiping my forehead. It's hot oh. here. <laughs> he even raise his hand. Fine, we'll continue. Ridiculous questions I've ever heard. James Wilson, Jr. of Toledo, Ohio, wants you to compose a second line to his one-line verse. Here it is. Fred Allen has a funny show. I'm going home. <laughs> now, you keep your seat. All right, Fred Allen has a funny show. Let's hear a second line to that. Joan? Fred Allen has a funny show, but there's not a thing he doesn't know. <clears throat> Very good, Joan. All right, uh, let's have another one. Funny about that show, boy. Gerard? When Mr. Benny hears that, he'll surely blow. <laughs> All right, uh, Jackie, what have you got to offer? Fred Allen has a funny show. 
How he does it, I don't know. His jokes are old, his gags ain't funny. He ought to be paid in Confederate money. <laughs> the end. Now then, here is really one for you, Jackie Benny. Listen That's to time. this. My father's listening in. Yeah. All right, tell me, how many strings on a violin? Five. Uh, I mean four. Yeah. Four. Very good. How do you spell rosin? R-O-S-O-N. Rosin. That's wrong. It's R-O-S-I-N. Can't understand it. I've been using it for years. <laughs> well, there's the bell, kids. I'll have your scores in just a moment. Have you had your vitamins today? Well, here's the answer to your daily vitamin A and D problem. Take one-a-day brand vitamin A and D tablets now offered and guaranteed by the makers of Alka-Seltzer. Each one-a-day tablet is equal in vitamin A and D content to two whole teaspoonfuls of cod liver oil, meeting minimum United States pharmacopoeia standards. One-a-day is all you take, one-a-day is all you need, and a penny a day is all it costs. Listen to these low prices. 30 tablets, 35 cents. 90 tablets, only 85 cents. And 180 tablets, only a dollar and a half. One a day is all you take, and one penny a day is all it costs. Remember, one-a-day brand vitamin A and D tablets have been developed and are guaranteed by the makers of Alka-Seltzer, tested and approved by Good Housekeeping Bureau, and commended by Consumer Service Bureau of Parents Magazine. Every member of your family should take one-a-day tablets every day. Ask your druggist for one-a-day tablets. That's the name, one-a-day brand. Look for the big one on the package. I got rolling, the show had to be over. Well, kids, as a group, you missed only one question tonight, and the individual winners are Richard first, Joan second, and Claude third. Of course, I knew I wouldn't be in. I congratulate you. I... I congratulate you, as I said before. I congratulate all you quiz kids. And take pleasure in presenting to each of you, in behalf of the makers of Alka-Seltzer, a $100 denomination United States savings bond. And Jackie Benny, I don't have one for you. You see, these bonds are to help the children pay for their future education, and we didn't think you'd spend your money in going to college. But here's a Zenith portable radio. Maybe you can learn something listening to the quiz kids every Wednesday night. Well, at least I can hock the radio. I can get something... <laughs> Friends, we'll be back in Chicago next week, and we'll resume competition with only the three highest scorers remaining, remaining for the su succeeding examination. The three winners on our last competitive program were Claude, Richard, and Jack. Completing the board will be Gerard and Joan, the same children on the program tonight. Meanwhile, this is Joe Kelly dismissing the Quiz Kids class until next Wednesday at this same time. Good night, kids. Come on, ask some more Kelly. questions. Let's get going here. Come on. Listen again next Wednesday night to the Quiz Kids. The makers of Alka-Seltzer present three programs each week, all of them on NBC networks. On Friday night, Alec Templeton time. On Saturday night, the famous Alka-Seltzer National Barn Dance. 
And next Wednesday night again, the Quiz Kids. For interesting variety and entertainment, listen to the Alka-Seltzer shows. Ken Carpenter speaking. This is the National Broadcasting Company. That was The Quiz Kids, as originally broadcast on April the 16th, 1941, on NBC. And since uh, Jack Benny made his appearance on there, we are going to play an episode of the Ford Theater from March the 4th, 1949. And this is going to be a presentation of the movie Benny always jokes about, The Horn Blows at Midnight. Co-starring with him are Mercedes McCambridge and Claude Rains. Here with Mr. Jack Benny in a highly unusual fantasy about an angel who was sent down from higher places to destroy the earth. A story which contains more than first meets the ear. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Benley finally got here. And tonight we present him with Mr. Claude Rains in, of all things, The Horn Blows at Midnight. This is the Ford Theater. Welcome to a full hour of the finest dramatic entertainment with celebrated stars of Broadway and Hollywood. Presented by the Ford Motor Company, builder of Ford cars, Ford trucks and farm tractors, Lincoln and Mercury cars, including the new 1949 Lincoln Cosmopolitan, America's most distinctive fine car, unrivaled for superb performance and luxurious appointments. Now to introduce this evening's program, here is the director of the Ford Theater, Fletcher Markle. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, all disputes, all threats, pleadings, persuasions, and all kidding aside, we're proud and pleased to welcome to the Ford Theater one of the great comedians of the world, Mr. Jack Benny. (laughs) Co-starring with Mr. Benny in the long-heralded Horn Blows at Midnight, we're very happy to have with us one of the most accomplished actors of Broadway and Hollywood, Mr. Claude Rains. This is the second program, by the way, in our Festival of Smiles, which concludes next week with Mr. Bing Crosby. (laughs) The theme of the Warner Brothers picture on which tonight's broadcast is based caused much comment when it was released some seasons ago. Being a fantasy having to do with the destruction of the Earth, the picture clearly raised a controversial issue. And we of the Ford Theater firmly believe that while a radio version of The Horn Blows at Midnight will not end any arguments, it will at least add zest to them. So come with us beyond the Earth's atmosphere on counted light years through space to a place very high above us, the office of the Chief of the Small Planets, an important executive in the system of the universe. You'll be hearing Claude Rains as the Chief with Mr. Benny as a minor angel named Nathaniel. And, of course, any similarity between these characters and any characters living is quite impossible. (laughs) Mr. Benny, Mr. Rains, and company, please to begin. Horatio, I tell you, something has to be done about it. Here it is, 1949, 
And that dreadful little planet is worse off than it ever was. What's the name of it again? Number 33974. It is called Earth. Oh, yes. Nasty little globe. It's always given me trouble, but now it's absolutely out of hand. Two world wars, persecution, hatred everywhere. Greed, intolerance, bloodshed. I'm just about fed up. What are you going to do, Chief? I'm going to destroy it, Horatio. I'm going to wipe it off the face of the... Uh, uh, well, I'm, 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 I'm going to destroy it. Without any warning? Well, the front office has warned them often enough. Quakes, floods, droughts, plagues, everything. But they pay no attention. Those Earth people aren't satisfied with making a mess of their own planet. Why, they're even working on rockets to get to the moon. What do they want up there, Chief? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they're overloaded with the Ritz crackers and they believe that stuff about the moon being made of green cheese. <laughs> I'll bust for Elizabeth, my secretary. I'm going to settle this once and for all. Did you ring, Chief? Yes, come in, Elizabeth. I want you to take down some notes. I'm destroying one of the smaller planets, and I want you to send copies to the recording angel. Uh-oh. What's the matter? It won't make a hit with the recording department. They're swamped with work. Oh, it's always something. What's their complaint? Same old thing. Shortage of angel power. I'm drawing up a new personnel questionnaire. Another one? <clears throat> More red tape. I never saw such incompetence, such inefficiency. You know, this place needs a few big businessmen to run things up here. We need them, and they better start letting them in. That's all I've got to say. What planet are you destroying, Chief? 33974. It's called Earth. Earth? Well, that was created rather hurriedly, as I remember. Yes, it was a six-day job. (laughs) Practically slapped together. Well, I'm going to slap it apart. How are you going to do it, Chief? Well, usually our demolition expert descends, blows his horn, and poof. Just poof? Well, for some of the larger jobs, it's poof, poof. (laughs) But this happens to be a one-poof planet. Anyway, our demolition expert is busy on another assignment, and I'll have to find someone else. Elizabeth, who would you suggest? What about Nathaniel? Nathaniel? That nincompoop, that blundering nitwit. (laughs) He's not a nincompoop, and he's not a nitwit either. And you shouldn't call him those names, Chief. Remember, he's an angel. Some angel. I don't see how he ever got his wings. (laughs) Elizabeth, what do you see in him anyway? Well, he's sweet and kind and understanding, and he plays the trumpet beautifully. That's right. He does play, doesn't he? He's been 455th trumpet in the Ethereal Philharmonic Orchestra for over 300 years. Then he certainly ought to be able to blow the horn. Go fetch him, Elizabeth. I will, Chief, immediately. He's rehearsing with the orchestra now. Nathaniel, please. Once again, gentlemen, and all together this time. Step up here, please. Yes, Mr. Beethoven. Uh, What is it, sir? For 120 years I've been conducting this orchestra. And for 120 years you've been playing the wrong notes. 
Why? Tell me why. Well, it's, it's a hard number and it takes practice. I'm sure I'll get it if you'll just be patient a little while longer. A little while longer? Yeah, besides, what's the rush? We're not going anywhere. <laughs> what has that got to do with it? We've got 10,000 men in this orchestra, 9,999 musicians, and you. Huh? Why did you have to take up the trumpet? With lips like yours, you should be a glass blower. A glass blower? Yeah, I tried that when I was on Earth. But one day, instead of blowing, I inhaled. <laughs> then I had to walk around with a sign on my back marked Fragile. <laughs> Look, Nathaniel, I don't care what happened to you on Earth. I only care what happens to me up here. Now go back to your place and please don't be flat. But, Mr. Beethoven, the music says B flat, doesn't it? That doesn't mean you should be flat. That means play B flat. Oh, oh I wish I'd have known that a hundred years ago. <laughs> Could have saved so much trouble. All right, Mr. Beethoven, I promise you. Nathaniel! Nathaniel! Huh? Oh, hello, Nathaniel. Elizabeth. I have wonderful news for you. The chief wants to see you. The chief? Is there something wrong? What do I do now? Oh, Nathaniel, don't be silly. You couldn't do anything wrong. Oh, no? If you don't think so, stay around and listen to him play the trumpet. It's better he should have the mute in his mouth. I don't use a mute. I use a derby. Gee, Elizabeth, I'm so excited. Imagine the chief wanting to see me. How do I look? Fine, fine. I'm so nervous. Is my halo on straight? Oh, it's perfect. Now, come on. Don't keep him waiting. All right. Will you excuse me, Mr. Beethoven? With pleasure. All right, gentlemen. Now we can play. Elizabeth, it's been so long since I've seen the chief, I, I won't know how to act. Just be yourself, and don't let him frighten you. If he seems gruff, it's only because he's terribly busy, like all the other deputy chiefs. He has billions of small planets to look after. I know, what a job that must be, keeping them in their own orbits. Well, we're almost there, and I'm so nervous. Hello, Elizabeth! Hello, Daniel! Hello, Hello. Paul! That's a beautiful horse Mr. Revere rides. I wonder why he still carries those two lanterns. Nathaniel, yeah? you can ask him later. We haven't got time now. The chief is waiting. Oh. Uh... Horatio, you may not realize it, but getting rid of the earth will be a big help in balancing the budget. Think of all the rain and snow we'll save. Uh, yes, that is an item. And don't forget the thunder and lightning that little planet uses up. Why, we'll cut our electric bills in half. And, oh, uh, by the way, Horatio, remind me to talk to Halley about his comet. There's no point to its traveling around the earth anymore. Uh, yes, Chief. Oh, here comes Elizabeth with Nathaniel. Yeah, about time. Let him in. Here's Nathaniel, Chief. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, he hasn't changed a bit. Oh, well... Nathaniel, how long have you been up here? Uh, 300 years, Chief. I'm from New Amsterdam, you know. Hmm. Hmm. What's your rank? Angel, junior grade, third phalanx, 15th cohort. <laughs> Still junior grade, eh? I don't know why I sent for you. Was it possibly about changing my rank, sir? No, no. I see no reason for demoting you. Thank you, Chief. <laughs> I've been going over your record, and it's not too bad. It says here, deportment B, application B, virtue A, mentality. Well, this job doesn't require a genius anyway. 
You'll do. Do what, sir? Do what? Destroy planet number 33974. 33974? Why, that's Earth, my home planet. What will all the people do without it? Where will they live? Well, some of them will come up here and some of them will go to the other place. We have no time for sentiment. But, Chief, why are you destroying the Earth? Why? Simply because there's been nothing but trouble there. Now that the Second World War is over, it's in a bigger mess than it ever was. No peace, no harmony, no cooperation. If they want to end civilization, I'll end it for them. Elizabeth? Yes, Chief? See to the fan who wears his proper clothes for a visit to the Earth. You can attend to all that. Yes, I will, Chief. Gee, it'll be nice wearing buckled shoes and long stockings again. I still have good-looking legs, you know. Nathaniel, men's styles have changed on Earth since you were there 300 years ago. They have? Women's, too? Oh, yes, many times. But now they have the new look, and they're right back to where they used to be. Oh. Well, don't men wear long stockings anymore? Oh, no. But don't worry, Nathaniel. Your knees will be covered. You'll wear long trousers. Why can't I just wear my toga? I'm so used to it now. Because, my dear Nathaniel, you don't, we don't want you to be conspicuous. You've got an important job to do. Oh. Well, Chief, how do I go about destroying the Earth? Horatio, hand me that horn. Yes, Chief. Here you are, sir. Now, Nathaniel, you simply blow four notes of the Judgment Day Overture on this horn, and that will be the end of the Earth. Gee, it's the most beautiful trumpet I've ever seen. It is not a trumpet. Oh. It's a very special kind of horn. Now, listen carefully to these instructions. You'll proceed to New Amsterdam. It's called New York now, Chief. Oh, New York, then. Mercurius will arrange for your transportation. You will then check into the Waldorf Biltmore Hotel, and a few minutes before midnight, you will go to the roof. Yes, sir. Now, this is very important, Nathaniel. The horn must be blown at midnight sharp. Yes, sir. Remember, that means precisely 12. 11.59 won't do. 12.01 won't do. It must be 12 on the dot. Got that? Yes, sir. I'll see that the horn blows at midnight. <laughs> Leave it to me. All right, now get going. If you do a good job, when you come back, you may find yourself an angel senior grade. Me, an angel senior grade? That means a raise in my base pay. God. <laughs> but if you botch the job, you'll be back scrubbing clouds for the next 500 years. Yeah, I hope not. My knees are still wet. But don't worry, Chief. I won't botch it. I'll make good. That's the spirit. Now, are you ready to, um... The interplanetary phone, Chief. Department of Small Planets. Chief speaking. This is the salvage department. Any instructions, Chief? Yes. Stand by to pick up a load of scrap at midnight. Hmm. That'll be all, Nathaniel. Are you sure you remember everything? Don't worry, Chief. I won't forget a thing. Goodbye. Wait a minute. Come back here. You forgot the horn. Oh, that's because I'm so excited. Well, goodbye, Chief. Goodbye. Elizabeth, you stay with him until he leaves. See that he gets away in time. Yes, Chief. Come along, Nathaniel. I'll walk you to the edge. I'm going to miss you, Nathaniel. You are, Elizabeth? Yes. Well, I'll only be gone. Hello, Nathaniel. Oh, hello, Noah. Going away? Yes, but I'll be home tomorrow. (laughs) Well, when you get back, drop in. I'm having a little gathering in the ark. In the ark? Mm -hmm. Oh, good, good. Who's coming over? Oh, just a few couples. Oh, well, thanks. (laughs) Thanks very much. I'll see you later. What are we talking about, Elizabeth? I said that I was going to miss you. Oh, well, I'll only be gone one night, and then I'll come back, and we can spend the next hundred years together just talking about my trip. Gee, these earth clothes are funny. What do you call this again? That's a vest. And is this a doublet? No, that's a coat. Oh. But what is this label? I wouldn't want to wear someone else's clothes. 
Poor Hart Scheffner and Mark. <laughs> Don't worry, Nathaniel. And by the way, I'd better give you some money. Here. What are these? Gilders? No, these are dollar bills. Oh. Well, I wouldn't know about that. <laughs> See, they feel nice and crispy. And these are five dollar bills. Oh, I like these better. They feel even nicer and crispier. Look at the pictures on them. George is on one, and Abe is on the other. Yes. Yes, you'll need them, Nathaniel. And now you'd better go. I'm on my way, Elizabeth. Nathaniel! Nathaniel! Well, that's the chief. Gosh, I hope he isn't calling me back. Nathaniel, I'm glad I caught you before you left. There's one very important thing I forgot to tell you. What is it, chief? Before you blow that horn, be sure to check with Petrillo. I don't want any trouble with him. <laughs> oh, I will, chief. I will. Goodbye. 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 Watch that first step. It's a pip. I will. I will. See you tomorrow. You're listening to the Ford Theater, which tonight is bringing you Jack Benny, starring in The Horn Blows at Midnight with Claude Rains. A brief pause now before Act Two, and some timely hints on car values from Frank Martin. There's an exciting time in store for many of you in the coming week that can make a world of difference in the pride and enjoyment you get out of motoring. That's the time which your Lincoln dealer invites you to spend behind the wheel of a new 1949 Lincoln Cosmopolitan, America's most distinctive fine car. And in just a few miles, you'll discover why the Lincoln Cosmopolitan has no rival. You will see at first glance that here is an automobile truly distinctive, exclusive in its styling with lines and looks that lift it apart from every other car on the road. You'll recognize as you sink back into the soft foam rubber cushion seats that no other car offers a more luxurious interior, more elegant interior refinements. You'll feel rich custom upholstery. You'll discover unhampered visibility through the huge one-piece windshield of curved safety glass that is almost five feet wide. You will whisk the windows up and down at the mere touch of a button. And as you drive this outstanding 1949 Lincoln Cosmopolitan, you will discover performance that you have never before known in a fine car. For the great new Lincoln V-Type 8 engine is unsurpassed for dependability, economy, and efficiency. It's so powerfully smooth, so thrillingly quiet, so effortless in its range of acceleration. You can't believe it until you drive the new Lincoln Cosmopolitan. In all the world, there is no other fine car so beautifully new, so thoroughly owner-proven, so superbly engineered as this new 1949 Lincoln Cosmopolitan. Yet it costs very, very little more to own than an ordinary car. Take just a few minutes in the coming week, or even better, tomorrow, to accept your Lincoln dealer's invitation to meet this superb 1949 automobile the new Lincoln Cosmopolitan. You know you're driving America's most distinctive fine car, and so does the rest of the world when you drive the new 1949 Lincoln Cosmopolitan. Now again, Fletcher Markle. And here's the second act of The Horn Blows at Midnight, starring Jack Benny as Nathaniel with Claude Rains as the chief of the small planet. Now, Nathaniel, having arrived in New York City, is strolling down Broadway with the horn tucked under his arm. 
Since it was 300 years ago that he last saw this famous street, it's small wonder that he marvels at the changes. So this is New York. I wonder why they changed the name. Look at that sign over there, baseball today. Boston Red Sox and New York Yankees. Well, I guess it does sound better than New Amsterdam Yankees. <laughs> Gosh, this place certainly is built up. I wish Peter Stuyvesant could see it. How they laugh when we bought Manhattan Island for $24. I bet we could double our money now. My, what big buildings. I never saw so many horseless carriages. Look at those yellow ones. See, they go around the corners on two wheels. I wonder if they could... Get back on the curb, you jake. You want to get killed? No, thank you. Not again. <laughs> the records would be all mixed up. Hey, Doesn't mister. It? You better wait for the light to change before you cross the street. Light? Light to change? Sure. You must be a stranger. Ain't you never been in New York before? Oh, yes, yes. I come from New York. But I've been away for a long time. Say, that's a good-looking trumpet you got there. Yeah. How about giving us a little bebop? Bebop? Yeah. Is that bebop or rebop? Bebop or... Is that music? Is it? It's out of this world. Well, that's where I've been, and I've never heard of it. <laughs> bebop or rebop? What band are you with? Uh, Beethoven's Ethereal Melodians. It's a very fine orchestra. 10,000 pieces. 10,000? Gee, they must sound louder than Spike Jones. Spike who? Jones. Didn't you ever hear him play All I Want for Christmas is my two front teeth? No, but it sounds like a very interesting selection. I'll suggest it to Mr. Beethoven. Beethoven, huh? Yes, I play 455th trumpet. I've been playing it for nearly 300 years. Hey, Johnny. This guy must be a little hut's name, like a fruitcake. Uh, what's your name, Methuselah? No, no, but I know him very well. <laughs> I, in fact, I went to his birthday party last month, and he had the biggest cake. Took us two weeks to blow out the candles. <laughs> hey, Jerry, let's get out of here before the wagon backs up. Yeah. <laughs> well, so long, Grandpa. Give my regards to Beethoven. I will, I will. <laughs> Look at them run away. They were nice youngsters, though. Well, people aren't so bad down here. My, the streets are certainly crowded here in New York. Look at all those men and women going into that theater. Hamlet by William Shakespeare. Good old Bill. Wait till I tell him about this. He'd be so happy to know he's finally got a hit. <laughs> Gee, look at all the saloons on this street. I wonder what kind of a drink television is. <laughs> I don't remember it. What's that big bird doing up there in the sky? So noisy, too. Spelling out something. I.J. Fox. Must be a store up there. No, no, that would be impossible. There he is, officer, that's him! Oh, yes, well, I'll handle him, kid. Hey, you there, you the horn. Huh? Were you speaking to me? Yeah. 
Well, I understand you've been playing that trumpet you got there for the last 300 years. Yes, sir. I, I'm with Beethoven's Ethereal Melodians. Oh, you are, eh? Well, what's your name? Nathaniel, third phalanx, 15th cohort. Uh-huh. And uh, exactly how old are you? Uh, 355. Of course, I tell everyone up there that I'm 339. <laughs> I'm really 355. Oh, oh. Naughty, naughty, you're a bad boy. Well, it's only a white lie. You know, I, I just can't get over how this town has changed, and the people, too. Where are the Indians? In Cleveland. Yeah, Bob Hope's got him now. <laughs> Bob Hope? Sure, the big radio comedian. Don't tell me you've never listened to Hope. No, what did he say? Hmm. <laughs> now, uh, would you mind if I ask oh, look, you... Look, I may be wrong, but I think that's the spot right there. Huh? The place where I was killed 300 years ago. You were what? I was killed here 300 years ago. I was run over by a cow. <laughs> I really was. A hit and moo driver. <laughs> you know, Mr. Beethoven gets mad when I tell jokes like but it was my own fault, you know. I shouldn't have been out so late. Yes, well, look, uh, uh... Nathaniel, third phalanx, 15th cohort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> look, Nathaniel, when did they let you out? A little while ago. Well, you're, you're going back, aren't you? Oh, of course. I just have to blow a few notes on this horn tonight, and then I'll return immediately. Oh. Well, why wait till tonight? Why not blow the horn now? Oh, I, I couldn't do that. You see, the chief said it wouldn't work unless it was exactly midnight on the dot. The chief said that, eh? Yes, sir. Oh. Well, I guess there's no harm in letting you run along. But you'll remember to go right home as soon as you blow the, blow the bugle. Oh, yes, yes, I will. <laughs> I certainly will. Just as long as I blew it, I will. <laughs> well... Well, goodbye. I'll, uh, I'll see you later. Oh, no, you won't. If you've been good, I will. <laughs> goodbye. My, what a nice man. Step right inside the store here, folks. The auction is about to begin. Now, friends, I have here my hair in a timepiece that is acknowledged all over the civilized world as the finest example of watchmaking that human hands can create. My friends, just look at this watch. Look at the solid 14-carat gold-type case. Gold-type case? The jewel die, consisting of 24 genuine artificial diamonds. <laughs> the real synthetic alligator strap fit for a king's wrist. Gee. Ah, you like it, don't you? Well, I don't blame you, friends. Now, who'll start the bidding at $300? I'm a bid $300, $300, $300. Who'll say $300? $1. I'm bidding up. All right, who'll make it a dollar and a half? Why, friends, the movement alone is worth that much. Who'll say a dollar and a half? A dollar and a half? A dollar and a half? Can anyone say a dollar and a half? I can say a dollar and a half. <laughs> a dollar and a half. See, I said it. 
<laughs> so, to the intelligent-looking man with the horn, for a dollar and a half. Congratulations, sir. Here you are. Thank you, sir. My friend, you have a watch there that will last you a hundred years. A hundred years? What will I do with it after that? Oh, well, I'll think of something. <laughs> I wonder where the Waldorf Biltmore Hotel is. That's where I have to go. I better ask someone. Oxtree, get your pipers here. Oxtree, read all about it. I beg your pardon, but I'm... A piper? You want a piper, mister? Piper? <laughs> uh, what's a piper? A paper. <laughs> no, no, thank you. But could you, uh, could you direct me to the Waldorf Biltmore Hotel? Oh, Sonny, Sonny, it's one block down and two blocks to the right. Thank you. I understand it's a lovely place. Had it best. <laughs> I wouldn't live nowhere else. Oh, then you live there? Sure, I got the penthouse there. I just sell these papers for a hobby. My dad owns the four-way coal tablets. Oh. <laughs> well, if you have the penthouse, we'll be neighbors. I'll see you over there. That is, if you get home before midnight. Well, thanks again. Goodbye. Goodbye. I don't know where they come from, but I always get them. Poipers, get your poipers here. Poipers. Da 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 ding. Da 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 ding. Yeah, it was nice of him to direct me to the hotel. The earth can't be so bad with people like him on it. I wonder if the chief isn't making a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't. Oh, oh, I didn't say it, chief. I was just thinking. It's just that it seems such a pity. I mean, there's so many nice people. I'll do it. I'll do it, Chief. Don't worry. I'll do it. You see, Elizabeth, he's weakening already. I told you he was the wrong one to send. But, Chief, he'll do it. He said he would. He's on his way to the hotel now. I've got a good mind to recall him and send someone I can rely on. Oh, please, Chief, don't do that. Nathaniel's all right. It's just that he has such a soft heart. Well, I should have sent an older angel. Nathaniel is only 339. Anyway, that's what he says. But, Chief... How he got to look like that in only 339 years, I'll never know. <laughs> I'm worried, Elizabeth. Oh, why don't you wait and see? I'm sure everything will be all right. It better be. If that horn doesn't blow at midnight, I'll drop him out of the phalanx. So this is the Waldorf Biltmore. My, what a beautiful hotel. Sure is crowded, too. Paging Mr. Davis, Mr. Charles Davis. Paging Mr. Davis. Paging Mr. Caesar, Mr. Caesar, please. I'll take it, boy. Is that for Julius? No, sir. Irving. Oh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> Paging Mr. Caesar, Mr. Irving Caesar. Oh, fiddlesticks. I wanted to ask him how to get to the roof. So near midnight. I'll ask that man at the desk. Boy, take this luggage up to 1023, huh? Oh, good evening, sir. Oh, good evening. Could you tell me how to get to the roof? Why, yes, sir. You take that last elevator. It's an express. Thank you. And uh, is that clock up there on the wall correct? Yes, sir. It's exactly ten minutes before midnight. You're quite certain? Oh, yes, sir. The sun rises and sets by that clock. I'm afraid you've been misinformed, if you don't mind my saying so. See, the sun's movements are completely independent of this planet. However, I will accept the time as 11.51 p.m. 
Thank you very much. I'm sure Western Union will be deeply grateful. <laughs> oh, that's perfectly all right. Are you stopping at the hotel, sir? Yes, for a short time. You staying overnight? No, and neither are you. <laughs> well, goodbye. Going up? Yes, the roof, please. That's a lovely elevator you have here. Eh, when you've seen one, you've seen them all. I suppose so. Is your name Otis? <laughs> yeah, how'd you guess? Otis J. Elevator, that's me. I'm pleased to meet you. I'm Nathaniel, third phalanx, 15th cohort. Why, it's nice in here, so intimate and cozy. Eh, it ain't so cozy when you have to stand in it all night long. All night long? Well, from six at night till two in the morning. Really? Then I have good news for you. Tonight you're getting off at 12. <laughs> hey, that's funny. The chief didn't tell me anything about it. Well, he told me. Well, I hope you're right. Uh, here's the roof, sir. Thank you. da 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 dee da 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 dee I wish I could get that right. da 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 dee what a beautiful sight up here on the roof. And all the stars are out tonight. There's Jupiter, Mercury, and Venus. Hello, Venus. Gee, she's pretty. Well, it's only five more minutes till midnight. Better get ready to blow the horn. Here's a good place to stand, right near the edge. I think I... What's that? Is someone there? Why, it's a girl, and she's crying. Uh, don't cry, miss. Whatever it is that's troubling you will be over very soon. It'll never be over. Never, never. Oh, yes, yes, it will, in just a couple of minutes. Please go away. Let me alone, can't you? But I assure you, you have absolutely nothing to worry about. He doesn't love me. He's sending me away. Well, I won't go back home. I won't. Maybe. <laughs> You can't very well go back home if you're not alive. Not... not alive? Yes, of course. That's the answer, the only answer. It's all clear now. Well, I'm very happy to have been of service. <laughs> Less than two minutes left. I'll show him. I wonder what he'll say when I'm gone. Well, here goes. Goodbye, Andrew. Wait, wait, you mustn't. You mustn't jump. Let me go. No, no, you can't. Why not? It was your idea. But suicide is a mortal sin. You let go of me. Be patient. Just a few more seconds. No, I won't be talked out of it. Let me go. You've got to listen to me now. There's very little time. Hey, Peggy. Peggy. Andrew. <laughs> what? Who's this? Oh, Peggy, darling. Hey, you get your hands off my girl. Let go of me, mister. It's midnight. I've got to blow my horn. I ought to jam it down your throat. My horn? <laughs> oh, let him go, Andrew. He didn't do anything. Oh, Peggy, I've been such a fool. Can you ever forgive me? As soon as you left, I realized what a mistake I made. Oh, Peggy, I'll never let you go again, believe me. Well, let go of me, then, and put your arms around her. Please, Andrew, it's midnight. I've got to blow the horn. Oh, Andrew, I'm so happy I could start crying all over again. Look, not tonight, baby. We're going to celebrate. Come on. Wait, wait, give me back my horn. Here you are, bud. Catch. 
Whoops! I missed it! I missed it! It's falling all the way down the street. I won't have time to get it. What am I going to do? Now I'll never get to be an angel senior grade. What am I going to tell the chief? I couldn't help it, chief. I couldn't help it. Give me another chance. Please, chief, please. Just one more chance. I want to be a senior. That's act two of tonight's Ford Theater presentation of The Horn Blows at Midnight, starring Jack Benny with Claude Rains. Time out again very briefly, and Frank Martin speaking for the Ford Motor Company. A gold medal is quite an impressive thing, particularly when it's awarded to the car chosen as the fashion car of the year. That gold medal has just been awarded to the 1949 Ford. Bearing out the judgment of millions of Americans, the Fashion Academy of New York, after examining all cars in all price ranges, picked the 1949 Ford as embodying all the essential qualities of good taste, modern design, and subtle harmony in line and color. Yes, the style experts have officially awarded the gold medal to the 1949 Ford for its beauty and advanced styling that set Ford apart in its field. And this recognition of Ford styling is not an accident. The 1949 Ford is the only completely newly designed car in its field. Ford engineers, designers, and stylists redesigned the Ford from roof to road, creating a completely new car to give you better, safer, easier driving. Truly modern motoring. And one basic part of that redesigning is Ford's new style, an advanced style that suits a truly advanced car, a style that expresses in steel and glass and chrome, the power, comfort, safety, and solid roadability, the advanced performance of the new Ford. Back of every point of Ford styling, you will find a good reason. More headroom, legroom, seatroom, luggage room. More visibility, more safety, more comfort, more efficient performance. And above all, better, easier driving. The 1949 Ford, alone in its field, was completely redesigned to give you those things. And it does. The 1949 Ford is not just a remodeled pre-war car, but the most advanced car in its field, the truly modern, truly post-war car. You can tell how advanced 1949 Ford styling is by looking at a new Ford and then looking at other new cars of older style. But you won't know how truly advanced it is until you drive a 1949 Ford, until you take the wheel and feel the difference. Feel the big difference that Ford's advanced design makes. Why not ask one of your friends to let you drive his new Ford or see your friendly Ford dealer? When you drive a Ford, you'll feel different. Drive a Ford and feel the difference. The Ford Theater presentation of The Horn Blows at Midnight will be resumed after a brief pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
Fletcher Markle again, and now for the third act of The Horn Blows at Midnight, starring Jack Benny as Nathaniel and Claude Rains as the chief. Elizabeth, of all the angels who could have done the job, you had to recommend Nathaniel. But, Chief, it wasn't his fault. Nathaniel was only trying to stop that poor girl from committing suicide, a mortal sin. Well, that wasn't his job. He should have obeyed orders. There are too many people down there committing mortal sins. That's why Earth has to be destroyed. Please, Chief, give Nathaniel another chance. After all, you've only lost one day. I know, I know, but Nathaniel has botched up every assignment I ever gave him. Remember two months ago when I put him in the weather department? All he had to do was to see that the clouds went in the right direction. And what happened? He got the elements so mixed up it snowed in California. Nathaniel. <laughs> Nathaniel Bob. No, but Chief, that was an accident. After all, he was new on the job, and he just didn't know. Imagine snow in California. He knows very well it's not even supposed to rain there. (laughs) That's where we keep our smog. (laughs) No, Elizabeth, I have no alternative. Nathaniel must be recalled. Chief, if you recall Nathaniel, now you'll destroy all his confidence. He tried so hard to make good. He was so happy at the chance to become an angel, senior grade. If you take that chance away from him, you'll break his spirit. And that's all he's got left. <laughs> oh, please, Chief. Be just a little more patient with him, won't you? Elizabeth, I don't know why I let you talk me into these things, but you always do. Then you'll give Nathaniel another chance? Oh, thank you, Chief, thank you. You're so good and kind, and he'll be so grateful. Well, you better blow that horn at midnight tonight, or else. And that's my last word, else. I'll thunder him his directions. <laughs> It certainly was nice of the chief to give me another chance. Lucky this horn didn't break when it hit the street. I'll just have to make good tonight. Let's see, there's still a little time before midnight. Guess I'll sit here in the lobby for a while. Certainly is a busy hotel. Aging Mr. Caesar, Mr. Irving Caesar, please. Hmm, same one he paged yesterday. I'll have to ask Julius if he has any relatives down here. (laughs) Julius is so nice. I think Brutus was definitely out of line. (laughs) Well, I got about 15 minutes yet. Yeah, I hope nothing goes wrong this time. Pardon me. May I sit down here? Oh, why, certainly. Certainly, there's plenty of room. Oh, thank you. Whoops. Wait till I remove the horn. (laughs) There you are. Thank you. Isn't this a beautiful hotel? Yes, yes, it is. I've had such a busy day. And you know, in about an hour, the limousine is coming back for me, and I have to go to a midnight supper at the Stork Club. Really? Yes, and then I'll have to go home and get some rest, because tomorrow I have so much more to do. I'm going to Saks Fifth Avenue and buy a complete wardrobe for my trip to Honolulu. Oh, you're going to Honolulu? Oh, yes, I have to go. You see, I hit the giant jackpot on singing again, and I've been traveling ever since. (laughs) I, uh... I don't understand. And not only that, they painted my house inside and out, and it looks so strange now. I loved it the way it was. (laughs) Well, 
look, a lady... I'm Mrs. Watson. Oh, how do you do, Mrs. Watson? My name is Nathaniel. Nathaniel. The third phalanx, 15th cohort. <laughs> oh, I've never been there. Oh, no, no, it isn't a place. Paging Jack Benny. Mr. Jack Benny, please. Paging Jack Benny. Uh, Mrs. Watson, what oh, I meant oh, to say... Oh, wait a minute. Did you hear that? What? They're paging Jack Benny. Jack Benny? Yes. <laughs> Haven't you ever heard him on the radio? Well, well, no, no. Oh, I, I, I... I hope he's living in this hotel. I might see him. He's simply wonderful. <laughs> I listen to him every Sunday, even though I can't win anything. Uh. <laughs> oh, well, what does this You Benny... know the thing I like about him? What? He pretends to be stingy and cheap. And I'm sure he's not that way at all. He, uh, he isn't? No, I can tell just by listening to him that he's the sweetest, kindest, and the most generous man in the whole world. Oh. Well, it's nice to know there are people like that. <laughs> and you want to know something? I almost met him a year ago. You did? Yes, I guessed he was the walking man, but they never called me on the phone. Oh, that's too bad. Well, I better wait out in front of the hotel now. The limousine will be coming any minute. The limousine? Yes. Governor Dewey is the one who has to take me to the stork club. That's part of the jackpot. <laughs> oh. Well, goodbye, Mrs. Watson. It was nice talking to you. Oh, thank you, Mr. Phalanx. Uh, no, no, no. It's a thank Daniel, <laughs> third Phalanx, 15th cohort. Uh, goodbye. Goodbye. Well, now, that was the sweetest old... Oh, my goodness. That nice old lady thinks she's going to Honolulu tomorrow. And I have to... Oh, no. <laughs> Look, Nathaniel is weakening. Who cares whether anybody goes to Honolulu or not? He cares, Chief. He worries about everything. That's why he's so... so... Stupid? That's what he is, stupid. I still say we sent the wrong angel. No, you didn't, Chief. He still has time. He'll go through with it. Then what's he sitting there for? Why doesn't he go up on the roof and get ready? Look, look what he's doing down there now, biting his nails. Well, he's nervous. Nervous about what? Destroying one of our smallest planets? It's ridiculous. Well, warn him again, Chief, so he'll know it's almost midnight. All right, all right. I'll send him another thundergram. Yes, yes, Chief, I know. Well, I still got about seven minutes. Gee, I hope nothing goes wrong this time. Hello, monsieur. Huh? Oh, oh, hello, little girl. Hello. Are you lost? No, monsieur, I am not lost. Oh. Oh, I thought the way you were looking at me, you you wanted to ask me something. No, no. You just seem so sad, sitting here all by yourself. I am sad. Why, monsieur? Because of something I have to do at midnight. I'm worried about it. Well, you mustn't worry. My mother told me, even when we were in the camp, not to be sad, because someday everything would be all right. The, uh, the camp? You were in... A prison camp, monsieur, back in France. Oh. Oh, I see. Did you do something wrong? No, monsieur. 
Well, uh... Would you like a piece of my candy bar, monsieur? No, thank you. Although I haven't had a bite since I came down here. <laughs> Except my nails. <laughs> <laughs> then please take a bite of this chocolate bar. Well, thanks. Thanks. What's your name? Angelique. Angelique? That means little angel in French. Oui, monsieur. You know, I'm an angel, too. <laughs> I'm a big angel. You are? What's your name? Nathaniel, third phalanx, 15th cohort. What's your cohort? I don't know. Je ne comprends pas. Oh, then you haven't been in this country long. No, we just came on the boat this morning from France. Oh, and did you say you were in a prison camp? Yes, me and my mama. For three whole years. Then the Americans came and got us out. Oh. Well, where's your mommy and your daddy? Well, my mama is right over there. But I don't know where my daddy is. He used to be a soldier. Oh. Oh, well, Angelique, how is it that you speak English so well? Mama has been teaching me a long time. Three whole years. Three years? I suppose that is quite a long time for a mortal. Especially such a small mortal. And you don't know where your father is? Huh? No, monsieur. But Mama said he was the most wonderful man in the world. And we're all going to be together again someday. Angelique? Angelique? Is he Mama? Here I am. Oh, I was worried when I didn't see you. Oh, she's quite all right. We were just sitting here talking. He's a very nice man, Mama. Angelique, were you annoying this gentleman? Oh, no, 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 not at all. We had him, such a nice chap. And Angelique was telling me what a wonderful man her father is. And you're all going to be together again. Is he in New York? Uh, no, monsieur. Angelique uh, would not understand, but he is... He's, well, he was a great hero. Oh, I see. And you just arrived from France this morning? Yes. Uh, tonight we are going to take the train to Chicago. We are going to live with relatives there. I have not seen them for over ten years. But they have asked us to come to them. Well, that will be nice. And your little girl can grow up in a good home like... Oh. Uh-oh. Oh, my goodness. What am I saying? You look sad again. Yes, yeah, I just remembered something. Mama, Mama, can I have another piece of candy? Angelique, I just gave you a whole bar. I know, but I offered to share it with this man, and he ate the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sorry, I just meant to take a bite. Yes. <laughs> Here's some money. You can buy another bar right over there. Thank you, Mama. You know, monsieur, Angelique does not know that her father is dead. Yes, I realize that. She's too young to understand. You see, she was just an infant when he was killed. Monsieur, you don't think there can be another war, do you? Well, not if I... No, I don't think so. Another war would mean the end of everything... There is not a country in the world that could go through it again. Not the way they fight wars now. People would just destroy each other. They would? Oh, yes, monsieur, yes. And yet it seems very simple for a lot of people 
to forget about the time of war. They do not want to remember. But we must remember, monsieur. All of us. And take care. Or we will die for it. Now it is time for people to get to know each other. Now it is time for people to come together in the world. But there's very little time left, you see. I know, monsieur. Oh. You do? Of course. If we do not change ourselves soon, it will be too late. Though the war is over, there is much still not settled. It may take five years or even ten years before we find the answer to real happiness and understanding. But we will find it, monsieur. We must now reach out to each other and find out about each other. By coming here, Angelique and I have a chance to do that. And we are grateful. We must find peace with each other, monsieur. Or we are lost. Yes, yes, I'm sure you're right. But you see... Mama, I have another candy bar. Would you like to share it with me, monsieur? No, no, thank you. I've, I've had enough. Well, come on, Angelique. We must go. Uh, goodbye, monsieur. Uh, monsieur... Nathaniel, third phalanx, 15th cohort. <laughs> uh, goodbye, Angelique. Goodbye, monsieur. Goodbye. Hmm. What a cute little girl. Spent three years of her life in a prison camp. Now it's getting near midnight. Better take the elevator up to the roof. Going up, sir? Yes, yes, the roof, please. Well, here's the roof, sir. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Well, it's almost midnight. I'm sure glad it's a nice night. It's the last one. Keep thinking about that little girl, Angelique and her mother. They seem so nice. All they want is a chance to live together in peace. Maybe most people are good. Maybe the war has been a lesson. If that's true, then the earth shouldn't be destroyed. Chief... Chief, do you think that I ought to go... But, Chief, you heard what she said, that little girl's mother. They've never had a chance before. Let them have it now. But, Chief, look, there must be millions of others just like them who need time to get to know each other. We have such hopes for the future. This is what Angelique's father gave his life for, to give other people a chance. And now you want to take it away from them. Chief, let's wait a while. Look, Chief, look. Now, suppose all these people down here don't get together. Suppose there is another war. Then the whole world destroy itself. They'll blow the earth to pieces. And then remember, Chief, that would take the responsibility off your shoulders. You won't be to blame. See? <laughs> See what I mean, Chief? You've waited this long, thousands and thousands of years. What harm is there waiting a little longer? Give them a chance. Maybe they'll get to work and live together in peace. Everything will straighten itself out, and it'll be the way you want it to be. What was that, Chief? Oh. 
Then I won't have to blow the horn? I'm glad you changed your mind. Well, I'd like to come back now, Chief. I'd like to see you and Elizabeth and Horatio. I'd even like to see Mr. Beethoven, too, even though he does holler at me all the time. From now on, I'm going to practice real hard and make him proud of me. Thanks, Chief. I'll leave right now. Going down, mister? Yeah? Going down? No, thank you. Up. From the Ford Theater in Hollywood, you have just heard Mr. Jack Benny starring in The Horn Blows at Midnight. Tonight's version for listening was prepared by Hugh Wedlock and Howard Snyder, and the original musical score was composed and conducted by Cy Fuhr. The Ford Theater, a full hour of dramatic entertainment, is brought to you every Friday by the Ford Motor Company, builder of Lincoln and Mercury cars, Ford trucks and farm tractors, and the new 1949 Ford car, officially chosen as the fashion car of the year. It's Ford for the new look in styling, and it's Ford for the new feel in driving. Drive a Ford and feel the difference. Now again, Mr. Markle. May a director identify the principals in our cast tonight. In the foreground... The chief. ...was played, of course, by Mr. Claude Rains, who will soon be seen in the Hal Wallace production, Rope of Sand. Elizabeth. ...was played by Mercedes McCambridge. Angelique. ...was Anne Whitfield. Angelique's mother. ...was played by Jeanette Nolan. Mrs. Watson. ...was Jane Morgan. Mr. Beethoven. ...was Hans Conried. Jerry and Johnny. ...were played by Jerry Farber and Johnny McGovern. Actively assisting were Paul McVeigh, Miriam Wolfe, Eddie Marr, Joseph Kearns, Jay Novello, Julian Upton, Sidney Miller... Herb Vigran, Byron Kane, and uh, Shirley Mitchell. Anybody else? Yes, Nathaniel. Was played by Jack Benny. <laughs> Jack, I've uh, got a confession to make. What is it, Fletcher? After all the kidding we did on your program about the horn blows at midnight, I have to admit now that I never saw the picture. You didn't? I just couldn't bring myself to walk into the theater. Why? It's a complex I have, Jack, the fear of being alone. <laughs> oh. Well, anyway, Fletcher, I want to tell you it was really nice doing this show for you tonight, and I promise you one thing. If I ever make another bad picture, you can have first crack at it. <laughs> Thank you, Jack. And by the way, just one more question before I give you your check. Oh, the check. Yes, yes. It, you know, it slipped my mind. <laughs> get your hand out of my pocket. Oh, oh. Yes, excuse me. What is it you wanted to ask me, Fletcher? Well, you always kid so much about your age. Tell me, Jack, and be on the level this time. How old are you, really? Fletcher, I'm 39. Now, cut that out! <laughs> so long, Fletcher. Goodbye, Jack, and see you again. You'll be listening to your regular program on TBS this coming Sunday night when Mr. and Mrs. Ronald Coleman will be your guest. Now it's for next week. Next week on the Ford Theater, we're going to have a story with music. Our star is Mr. Bing Crosby, and our story is one of his most recent films, Welcome Stranger. It's a pleasant portrait of a young doctor who goes to a small New England town so that the local physician can take his first vacation and then suddenly find himself an unwelcome stranger. We're very happy to have with Mr. Crosby, Mr. Barry Fitzgerald, playing his original role, and we'll be welcoming back Miss Anne Blythe for a return visit. 
I hope you'll be with us. And now until next week, until Bing Crosby, Anne Blythe, and Barry Fitzgerald in Welcome Stranger, this is Fletcher Markle with a good night and thank you from all of us in the Ford Theater. The Horn Blows at Midnight was presented through the courtesy of Warner Brothers, producers of the Academy-nominated Johnny Belinda, starring Jane Wyman and Lou Ayers. The Ford Motor Company invites you to join us again next week at this hour to hear Bing Crosby, Barry Fitzgerald, and Anne Blythe starring in Welcome Stranger. This is Frank Martin speaking. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. That was the Ford Theater from March the 4th, 1949. And that was their presentation of The Horn Blows at Midnight with Jack Benny, Claude Rains, and Mercedes McCambridge. going to do it for the old time radio grab bag for this Saturday this is uh, March excuse me March listen to me May the 8th 2021 this is Bob Bro I'm so glad you stopped by and I'm so glad you met me we'll be back tomorrow with our archive show we'll be back on Monday with a uh, old time radio comedy on Tuesday a drama on Wednesday a mystery and on Thursday a western see you then everybody bye bye